0: welcome to the lecture podcast for Building Strong Reading Skills. As always, you'll find the lecture slide PDF alongside the lecture link in your Canvas module. All right, so this lecture is based in part on the chapter Building Strong Reading Skills in the open source textbook, The Word on College Reading and Writing. You should be able to find that in canvas the link is in canvas as well as in the reading schedule and the course syllabus so the chapter opens with a discussion of what makes a strong reader what makes a good critical reader and i have reproduced that on the second slide in our lecture slide series Uh, this is just um, taken directly from the book and put before you. There are a lot of really good suggestions here. In order to read efficiently, make sure that you create a reading environment in which you can be focused and be efficient. It means different things for different people. Uh, if you need quiet, find it. If you need sort of background noise, music, something that helps you focus. This works for some people. It doesn't work for others. Make sure that you have access to Um, a way to take notes. Uh, Make sure also that you have access to a way to do research so so that you can google uh, words or ideas. Because, the list goes on, strong readers interact with the text. They annotate written text and they take notes about the text as they read. If you don't want to write on the text itself, if you're looking at digital texts or if you're working with a textbook, take notes alongside the text. So take notes Uh, that refer back to the text and make sure that you mark those notes clearly so that you can uh, track where you are in your reading. Uh, You want to think about what you're reading as you read. You want to think about not only what the author is saying but how they're saying it Uh, and that means making sure that you really understand each piece of the writing and that goes down even to the meaning of each phrase of each particular word. And that often means that you have to do a bit of research to investigate the content that you don't fully understand. But that's okay, right? You have the tools to do that. At the very least, you can Google something. You'll be surprised at how much information you can get that way. And we'll talk a bit more about that later. So strong readers work to discover the central meaning of what they're reading. They ask themselves questions like, What is the author's point? What is the text trying to say? What story is the author telling? How does the author create and build the meaning that they're trying to describe? Uh, Is it through a lot of examples? Is it through one highly detailed personal story? Is it statistics? Um, Is it by collecting the voices of multiple people and presenting them? What tactics does an author use? And readers also think about what the text means to them and how it affects them. Makes sense, right? As a reader, you have your own reactions to judge your response to the text by. So how are you responding to the text? Is it exciting? Is it boring? Is it making you angry? Is it making you sad? Is it hard to connect to? Um, And if so, why? What What is it missing? Think about why you're responding the way that you are. Um, And then think about what this text actually makes you think about. What larger ideas or problems or theories does it connect to? And what does that information mean to you? Above and beyond the fact that you have to do whatever this piece of reading is because it's assigned for a class, how does this connect to your larger understandings, Uh, whatever they may be of a concept or several concepts, etc.? So again, as you read, take notes, write down main points, write down ideas, write down questions. Read carefully, always read carefully, look up the words you don't know, and don't make assumptions based on your own expectations. Sometimes when we read, we read into a text. We have theories about what it must be trying to say or how we might interpret a particular concept or person or thing. That's fine we're all human beings, right? We have these thoughts, but it's not fine to overlay these thoughts into a text. That's not critical reading. That's not strong reading. So you want to make sure that you are looking for what the text is actually saying, which means reading it carefully and not making assumptions. So in order to demonstrate this, I want to do a short critical reading exercise. So on slide four, the lecture slides, you'll see a short poem uh, by Afra Ben. And this poem was initially published in 1682. So it's quite old. Afra Ben is a fascinating character. We won't talk too much about her, but she was a female playwright uh, and poet. And she has a very large body of work. All right, so I'm going to give you a moment to go to the lecture slides and to read the poem. And then we'll work through a sort of critical discussion of that reading. All right, so the poem On Her Loving Too Equally by Aphra Ben. It's a short poem. It has three stanzas. A stanza uh, is a collection of lines. You can see they're numbered helpfully here. A stanza comes from the Italian word for room. It's one of the easiest ways to recognize a poem as opposed to uh, an essay or a novel. It's organized differently. So this is very short, as poems go, I'll just read it through here. How strongly does my passion flow, divided equally twixt two? Damon had ne'er subdued my heart, had not Alexis took his part. Nor could Alexis powerful prove, without my Damon's aid, to gain my love. When Alexis present is, then I for Damon sigh and mourn. But when Alexis I do miss, Damon gains nothing but my scorn. But if it chance they both are by, for both alike I languish, sigh, and die. Curse then, thou mighty winged God, this restless fever in my blood. One golden pointed dart take back, but which, O Cupid, wilt thou take? If daemons all my hopes are crossed, or that of my Alexis, I am lost. All right, so there's a lot of unfamiliar language in here, right? So as a reader, what you want to do is first make sure that you can parse what the text is actually saying, that you can follow it. So on slide five, you can see I've taken a few notes. I've circled unfamiliar words, and I've put questions near unfamiliar phrases. Um, So twixt, subdued, uh, one that I missed, but I'll just clarify here really quickly, uh, that nair n-e-apostrophe-e-r. This is poetic abbreviation for never. It just makes the meter, the organization of the lines work better, and a lot of poems from the 17th, 18th, and 19th centuries do this. Um, It seems to have fallen out of fashion since then, which I have to admit is not something I'm super sorry about, but okay. So twixt, subdued, scorn, languished, wilt, and thou. Uh, These are the words that I want to look up. And then there are a couple of phrases, Uh, Alexis took his part. I wanna make sure I know what taking someone's part means. And I wanna think about that second to last line as well. Um, All my hopes are crossed. Make sure I understand what that means. So uh, it's pretty easy, right? To look up the meaning of a word, I don't know. I just pull up my smartphone, open up Google, and I learn that twixt is a contraction for betwixt, an old word that means between. So divided equally between two is how that second line sort of reads in a modern vernacular. Subdued means to overcome, quieten, or bring under control. It can refer to a person or a feeling. So when we talk about Damon subduing the narrator's heart, he's talking about controlling it or overcoming it. Scorn is contempt or derision. Languish uh, can refer to a person or a living thing, but it means to lose or lack vitality, to grow weak or feeble. And interestingly, Google also gave me another definition, which it says is archaic, which means old, which means sort of no longer in use. The word once meant this and isn't used that way much anymore. And that definition is to pine with love or grief. So then we come down to my unfamiliar words in the third stanza, and I chose wilt and thou. Thou, it turns out, is also archaic. It's an archaic form of the word you. For a lot of people, this reads as formal, right? It sounds like a sort of fancier way of saying you. But actually, thou is an informal. It's casual. Uh, We don't use it anymore. But when people did use it, it was a way of implying closeness. Uh, to their subject. It wasn't something that you would call your boss, uh, but it's something that you would call your best friend or someone you were in love with. Okay, so wilt. This one is interesting, right? Because if you google wilt, the first definition it gives you is like a plant wilting. like something that sort of collapses because it lacks sunlight or water. Now, that really doesn't make much sense with the line, but which, O Cupid, wilt thou take? So, I keep scrolling down the definitions, and I find that wilt is also the archaic second person form of will. So if I plug that in, but which O Cupid will you take, it makes much more sense. And sometimes, often in fact in English, you'll look up a word and find multiple definitions. So then the next step there is to make sure that you choose the definition that makes sense in the context of the text that you are reading. In this case, Not wilting like a plant, but wilt as in archaic second person of the verb will. So it's worth pointing out that when you're reading and you come to words and ideas you're unfamiliar with, you want to stop and take a moment to do this really quick research. And I refer to using Google to find these words. Google's great, right? Plug it in, get your response keep on digging until you get the answer. If you find multiple definitions for a word, for example, uh, keep plugging them in until you find the word that actually works with what you're reading. And there are sometimes, the older a text is, the more likely it is that you'll be working with archaic or no longer used versions of a word. So if I tell you, as I did in this instance, that On Her Loving Too Equally was originally published in 1682, then you have a a sort of clue there right? that you might be uh, working with words that are no longer as common or familiar. And the same is true of idioms or phrases, um, words strung together that people commonly know what they mean. But these don't say the same. We have idioms in the 21st century that would not be recognizable to someone in the 18th century or the 17th century in this case. And that's true here as well. So you can also look up idioms. And that's what I've done for take someone's part, which is to take a side in an argument or to support someone. So my sister took my mother's part in the family argument. Take someone's part, you're on their side. And then I also was curious about the idea of crossing someone or something. And if you cross someone, you oppose them. You go counter toward their to their wishes. You go against them. So it's sort of the opposite of taking someone's part. And again, I learned this through a simple Google search. And that is really all you need. Uh, it can be very, super helpful. It puts you in a good place to interpret the text. Okay, so I also while i was googling things thought i would just check up on cupid pretty sure i know who cupid is right god of love shows up on valentine's day a kid in a diaper with flowers um but that might be my 21st century understanding of cupid and maybe not as much context as i should have so i went ahead and googled cupid as well and the encyclopedia britannica helpfully provided me with this definition cupid ancient roman god of love in all its varieties Uh, Yes. Okay. He often appeared as a winged infant carrying a bow and a quiver of arrows whose wounds inspired love or passion in his every victim. So if Cupid shoots you with his arrows, you fall in love or passion. Helpful, right? Just sort of confirms the role that Cupid is playing in this poem, where in the third stanza, our narrator asks, him to take his dart back, to take his arrow back. She's essentially asking for the revoking of a kind of love. Okay, so now that I've done all of this research, I've read the poem carefully. I've looked up the words and phrases and concepts I don't know. That means that I can know what the poem's about, right? So how many of you at this point agree with me here. In On Her Loving two Equally, the female narrator is choosing one lover over another. I think that's true or false. And since this is a podcast and not a classroom, I can't make you guys raise your hands, but just make a little note for me. True or false? And then after you've done that, go back and look at the poem again. Here it is again on slide 13. So let's use all of the information, all of the research we've done, and see if we can go stanza by stanza, if we can figure out what she's actually saying here. How strongly does my passion flow divided equally twixt two? So, how strongly does my passion flow? How much passion do I feel when it's divided between two people? The two people, looks like their names are Damon and Alexis. Damon had ne'er subdued my heart, had not Alexis took his part. Okay. So I got you, I was with you in the first line, right? How much is she in love divided equally between two people? And it's kind of a rhetorical question. We assume, because she's asked it, that it's a lot. But here, uh, we might have assumed that that meant that the two, Damon and Alexis, are rivals, that they don't like each other. Because that's sort of our conventional understanding of how a love triangle works, right? But we start to get cracks in that idea right away. Damon had ne'er subdued my heart had not Alexis took his part. So now let's, let's use our sort of context clues. We'll use the words that we've looked up and the phrases that we know. So we know that Damon would never have subdued her heart, would never have won her over had not Alexis took his part. So if Alexis is on his side, Alexis argued for Damon, which is a bit weird for a rival. So maybe they're not rivals. Let's go down to the last couple of lines in that stanza. Nor could Alexis' powerful prove without my Damon's aid to gain my love. So that is the same thing. She would never have liked Damon had Alexis not argued for him, not been taken his part, been his friend. And she would never have liked Alexis without Damon doing the same thing. So her affection for one guy is based on the support of the other and vice versa. That's not really rivalry or at least it's not rivalry as we understand it. So already this first stanza is a bit confusing. We know she loves these two people equally, and we know that they are not uh, angry at each other, that they don't uh, argue against each other, but rather for each other, and for each other being in love with this one woman. Okay, let's see if the second stanza gives us some clarity. When my Alexis present is, then for Damon sigh and mourn, But when Alexis, I do miss, Damon gains nothing but my scorn. Okay, so this might sound pretty typical. Uh, When Alexis is present, when he's around, she misses Damon. And when she misses Alexis, when he's gone, uh, she doesn't want anything to do with Damon. So if one is there, she misses the other. And if one is there, then she doesn't want anything... or, Or excuse me, if one is not there, then she doesn't want anything to do with the other. So it's... Not that she enjoys her time with the one she's with. It's initially that she misses the one that's gone. And even then it's, um, she doesn't feel anything for the person who is still there. Yikes. But let's look at these last two lines. But if a chance, they both are by. For both alike, I languish, sigh, and die. So here we go. Um, If they're both there, then she loves them both. Remember we talked about languishing sighing, dying. So is she literally dying? No. But she's sort of overcome with her emotion, with her love. So it seems like she's saying in the second stanza, she can only love them when they are together and there. So that's a really interesting definition of love. It's very conditional, right? She needs both of them to be around. at the same. In, in the first stanza, we knew she needs both of them. In the second stanza, we learn that she needs both of them to be present at the same time. Okay, so finally, we get to the third stanza, where she starts talking not about her lovers, but then directly to Cupid, this god of love. Um, cure, cure then, thou mighty winged god, this restless fever in my blood. One golden pointed dart take back, but which, O Cupid, will thou take? If Damon's all my hopes are crossed, or that of my Alexis, I am lost. So she's actually not making a choice here, right? Instead, she's saying to Cupid, you do it. You fix this. You cure this love. You choose, you choose which one to take back. You make me fall out of love with one of them. But just as soon as she proposes the solution, she admits that it's not going to work. But which will you take? If it's Damon's, all my hopes are crossed, or that of my Alexis, I am lost. So if she loses one, she loses everything. Um, And we sort of know what that means in in better context, because we understand from the first two, two stanzas that she's not torn between the two of them, as in she wants to pick one or the other. She likes having them both at once, and they seem to be fine with that as well. So this is not what you would call a typical romantic triangle, right? This is not a conventional love story. What this poet seems to be arguing for is an unconventional model of romance. So if we go back to our question, the female narrator is choosing one lover over another, that initial summary I gave you, that's actually not correct, right? That is a misreading of the poem. And that misreading might come from our expectations. That's sort of how it works. In uh, movies, plays, TV, etc., this is a very common uh, way to understand love and romance, that one, uh, when one person has two interested suitors, he or she has to pick one. And you can see that our narrator in this poem is sort of faced with that pressure, but you can also see that she wants nothing to do with it, that in fact, choosing one won't solve the problem. So she's not gonna make that choice. And initially she asks Cupid to make that choice, but then acknowledges that he really can't. So this is not a conventional poem. In fact, this poem is saying something very different from what you might expect it to say. The author here seems to be arguing that it's better to be in love with these two guys at once. They're fine with it. She's fine with it. Uh, If anyone wants anything different, then Cupid's going to fix it and I have to fix it. But if he fixes it, he's going to destroy the whole thing. So there is no uh, happy ending for the narrator and just Alexis or the narrator and just Damon. Okay, so if we go back to our questions from the initial part of the podcast, the the questions strong readers ask, Uh, We can ask things like what is the author's point? What is Aphra the the poet, saying through this poem, through this narrator? Um, And she seems to be proposing a kind of new model of love and relationships, or a new model, but perhaps a more unconventional model of love and relationships. Why can't the world just let the three of them alone? Uh, They seem happy. How does the author create and build this meaning? By explaining Right by showing how love works, and then by explaining at the end that not even Cupid can fix this. And then the next step of that reading process is for you as the reader. How are you responding to the text? Did you initially misread it? Uh, If you did, was it because you assumed you knew what it was supposed to say? How do you respond to it now? What do you think of the author's argument? Um, What kind of emotions or ideas does it provoke? Does it change the way you think about the quote-unquote past, right? The old-fashioned kind of like morality. Um, Does it make you think about anything? What does this information mean to you? Um, Think about that. And you will have critically read and responded to the poem. So I'm just going to leave that here for now. Uh, I'll just close with a final note of encouragement. This kind of reading, this kind of active engagement with text, it gets easier. The more you read, the easier it gets. Uh, it'll become second nature to look up words and phrases that you don't know. So keep with it. Uh, and like I said, it gets a lot easier and you will get a lot more out of what you read. So that's going to do it for me today. And I will be back to talk to you guys more later. Take care.